Now, time for the hot seat question time. Pastor Tom has the mic. I do not have a book today to give to the first question asker, but what I will give to you if you are the first person to ask a question is respect. So, who's got a question? Oh, come on. There it is. All right. You'll be next. Hey, uh, last night you mentioned something about stop using the phrase love the love the sinner but hate the sin. And I've had that conversation with some very good friends that are really strong Christians. And I... I guess I didn't catch it all last night for whatever reason. Could you kind of go over that again? Yes. Yes, I can. Love the sinner, hate the sin. We've all heard the phrase. We all think it's a good phrase to use. But when we're engaged with the LGBTQ community, we have to understand that identity is, is informed by behavior and feelings. Okay? So how do I know I'm gay? Because I feel gay and I act gay. That's how I know I'm gay. So when a Christian says to someone who has based their identity on what their feelings and their behavior have informed, like homosexual or transsexual or bisexual or lesbian or asexual or any of the other 76 different designations out there, what they're essentially hearing the Christian say is, I hate you because my behavior and my feelings are my identity. The behavior and feelings that we call sin, that's their identity. So this isn't a phrase that actually gets relational equity or gives, you know, more permission to talk to individuals. Instead, it's, it's basically saying, I despise the very things that you find as your whole personhood. And so it doesn't work. I understand the heart behind it, but what instead I would encourage us to say is, I don't agree with you, but I love you. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes. And I think you had a question down here. Yes, down here. It's okay. So what do you find is the most helpful when you're trying to overcome all of that shame and everything like that? Like, do you have a specific verse you go to or do you just sit and pray? Like, what is the most helpful? Thank you for asking that. Um, for me, there were two passages of scripture that were super encouraging in my attempt to get over shame. Uh, Isaiah 61 is one of them where God literally says in the passage of scripture, for your former shame, I will give you a double portion of grace. So when I read that, there was no accusation for having shame. There was an exchange being offered. And I liked the ratio of this exchange. Like for my former shame, which was awful, there's a double portion of God's favor and grace. Yes, sir. Thank you. Let's bring that right on in here. I didn't understand what that might look like, but I, I will tell you this. When I was just deciding to break off this relationship with my boyfriend, I had wrestled with suicidal ideation because I was so afraid that someone would find out what I've done that I would rather have died than anyone find out. Growing up in the church culture that I grew up in, I was constantly told, you know, that anyone who commits suicide will immediately take a one-way trip to hell. 
and I'm not going to get into suicide right now on that, but there's, there's conversations to be had about this. But uh, so I realized I couldn't do that. So then for a brief moment, I considered homicide. If I kill him, he'll never tell. And then I can repent and everything will be good. When you realize you're having this conversation with yourself, you realize you're deep. You're in deep doo-doo. So I was like, okay, that's a problem. That was the level of shame that I was in, that I would either murder or murder myself to not have that shame exposed to the world. When I sat across the couch from my youth pastor and his wife two years later, and I confessed what I had done, and I was met with love and grace, it broke the power of shame in my life because the thing that the enemy told me would happen if people knew didn't happen. You know, the enemy lies to us all the time to try to control us. And I'm pretty sure I'm not the only person who has heard from the enemy. If they really knew who you were slash what you've done slash what you're struggling with, they would reject you. Anyone else hear that? Let's just have a high raise of hand for anyone who's heard that. And I want you actually to keep your hands up and look around the room so that we can understand that the enemy lies to all of us the same way. Because here's something that really, really beautifully began to transform my perspective. And the second passage, by the way, is Psalm 103, which is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, um, which I'll go into that in a minute. But when I left my youth pastor and his wife's house, in two days' time, like two to three days' time, I confessed and was honest with over 50 people. I do not recommend it. Um, but I will tell you what happened every time but once. Every single time that I went to one of my friends and I went to them like this, I said, hey, I've not been honest with you about my struggles. And because of that, the enemy has had a lot of authority to, to accuse me and to keep me in, in prison. And I don't want to keep secrets with Satan anymore. And I don't want to be in prison anymore. And if my fear of you rejecting me is what's keeping me in prison, I got to get over it. So here's the thing. I'm going to tell you what I struggle with. And if you reject me and if you don't want to have any friendship with me, I get it. I understand. I won't hold it against you. But I will not be prisoner anymore to the fear that you might. So either reject me or don't, but I'm going to be free. And they were like, geez, what did you do? And I was like, well, I struggle with homosexuality and I was in a gay relationship. I left it two years ago, but I'm still struggling with my identity and I'm struggling to submit this to Jesus. I'm committed to Jesus and I'm committed to his plan for my life. And I really want you as my friend in this with me. But if you can't be, I understand and I don't hold it against you. And every time, 49 times, almost the identical reaction happened. Whoa, that's a lot. Thank you for sharing that with me. That means so much that you would trust me. I'm not rejecting you. I love you. I'm with you. How can I tell you what I'm struggling with? Every freaking time. Can I tell you what I won't tell anybody else? And then I said, no, this is my moment. <laughs> no. Do you know how much joy it gave me to be the first person to be able to hear a confession and to see someone set free from the captivity of shame? Two days after confessing 
myself and being free, I started offering it to other people. And the double portion of grace became more than just a concept. God was actually doing it immediately in my life. I, I can't even begin to tell you the joy that comes for me to be able to share what God has done, not just because I love sharing what God has done. I mean, who doesn't love telling a good story, right? But it's more than a story. It is permission for people who feel bound by the enemy to believe and receive the fact that they don't have to be. And it doesn't matter the nature of the sin. I've sat, you know, I, I mentioned abortion here earlier. Do you know how many women have come to me and said, because you've shared this, this is the other sin that the church dare not speak its name. This is my sin. This is my pain. This is my failure. And I don't want to keep secrets with Satan anymore either. One of those women who came and confessed to me was she, she had told this to her husband at the time. She had gotten pregnant as a, as a teenager. She was now married to this man. They're a wonderful couple. She had never told anyone else other than him. And then she shared it with me because I'm sharing it with everybody all about my life. And she began to dare to believe that maybe there's not condemnation for her. Now she's pursuing a therapy degree so that she can help other women who have been through abortion and need support. She's giving back a double portion of grace. So those scriptures, Isaiah 61, which has so much about the exchange that we get in, with God for your former shame. You know, I give you, you know, you, you know, the double portion of grace for your ashes. I give you beauty for your despair. I give you joy for your, for your captivity. I give you freedom for your blindness. I give you sight. I cannot tell you how much God has given me back in exchange for my brokenness. I can't even begin to tell you. I find it the greatest irony in the world that I get to go be a speaker at men's retreats and tell men how to live. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. You know, I, I, I just can't even begin to tell you what it feels like to be a, a man who believed that the church had no faith and no belief and no room for me. And now I get to serve the body of Christ with my entire life. Come on. So um, Psalm 103, a very encouraging passage of scripture starts with praise the Lord, O my soul, and all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. He who forgives all of my sins and heals my diseases and redeems my life from the pit of despair, who crowns me with love and compassion and satisfies all of my desires with only good things. This passage goes on to say that from as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgressions from me. And as far as, and as high as heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for me. For someone who believed God hated me and had no redemption for me, do you know how powerful it is for me to start my day by saying, don't forget, soul, everything the Lord has done for you. Forget not his benefits. Uh, these two passages of scripture, more than any other scriptures in my life, have been guideposts and instruction for me and promises that I cling to and that have borne to be true in my life. God's word is true and he is faithful to it. So thank you for the question. Other questions? Yes, back there.
Just let him get the microphone so I don't have to repeat it. Remember last night when Mike kept on saying, repeat the question, Drew? And I was like, I don't want to. Okay. In in the letters LGBTQ, what does I did some research today on what Q stands for and what was explained to me was it means queer or question. Could you explain that? Queer is a blanket term that the that the LGBTQ community uses to um, go over a lot of different designations that would have been included in like the 76 that are out there currently. So that might include like demisexual or asexual or or two spirit or um, cisgender. You know, there's so many different designations that this community has come up with to describe their individualized identity. And so Q in the in the queer just is a is a word to use like non-conforming to tradition so non-binary you know all these things questioning is an interesting one that it can also stand for which just means you don't know where you're at and so you're not committing to one direction or another you're questioning whatever it is and so that's what the q stands for okay good question thank you yes ma'am you, you just hurry up <laughs> Um, is asexuality or having no sexual attraction to anyone, is that a sin or like no. anything against? No, our, our, our state of vulnerability or our condition or what we experience as temptation or attraction or even orientation, those things are just, they're not sin, they just are. It's like sometimes we, we take what we view as negative emotions or outside the norm emotions and we classify them with a value. So like how many of you have ever felt like I can't be angry because that's bad? Okay, there's nothing wrong with anger. And the scripture says in your anger, don't sin. But anger is just an emotion. Emotion are like dashboard lights are telling you what's going on in you. A lot of the times our attractions and our orientation are just like dashboard lights too. They're just telling us something that's going on inside us. So for the asexual person, what that says is I have no interest in having sex with anybody. I have no romantic inclination or sexual inclination towards anyone right now. And honestly, good. Like that would help a lot of people in our world if you could just be asexual for a little while. Just calm down. You know, and... and and the thing that we need to understand is humanity, we're fluid. We change. The, the surest thing about us is that we're going to change. We change our minds. Our bodies change. Our perspective changes. Our likes and our dislikes changes. I used to hate sour cream as a kid. My parents would make me tacos and they put sour cream on it. And I'd be like, no, I will not. You know, it's like that. I didn't, I didn't like. Now, if I could swim in a tub of sour cream... Bless me, Lord. It would be amazing. So we, we change. Asexuality, all it says is that there's, there's something in your heart and soul that is blocking attraction. And that might mean that you just don't feel a need for it right now. And for a lot of people in their development, that's fine. My daughter at 16, she's like, I don't got no time for no stupid boys right now. She's like, I'm trying to get my way into college because my dad's in ministry and we ain't got money. So I need scholarships. She's like, I don't want no scrub is what she's at, you know, so, but she has a desire someday to want to have that. But right now she's like, I just don't need that right now. And if, and if we were meant by God to define ourselves based on our feelings, which we're not, she might look at that and go, well, maybe I'm asexual. A couple years back, 
she was really struggling with female friendships because a lot, like she just started a new school and she didn't have a lot of history with these girls and she was struggling. She's a, little, a lot more introverted. She's kind of a nerd. I love her. Like she's this huge Star Wars geek and a Marvel geek and just a geek. Like I love her. She loves the musical Hamilton. I took her to Washington DC on a trip. No, no, it's annoying is what it is. <laughs> Because I took her on a trip to Washington, D.C. She loves Hamilton. She loves government. She loves all this stuff. I took her on a trip to Washington, D.C., a ministry trip. We got into the baggage claim of the airport. She says, Dad, history happened here. And I go, at the baggage claim lanes? Maybe. So two years ago, she was struggling to make friendships. And so she started feeling this longing to connect with girls. Well, what did her culture tell her that meant? So she comes home from school. My wife and I are there. She comes home. She goes, Mom, Dad, I need to talk to you about something. And I, of course, always calm, never reactive, thought, ah! No, so I'm like, what is it that you need to talk to us about, Lainey? Blink, 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 you know? And she goes, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about something. And I'm like, what's that? She goes, I, I'm, I'm worried I might be gay. <laughs> tilt, tilt, tilt. In my head, I'm thinking the very first thing. I'm not, of course, thinking that this is an impossible situation. I'm thinking, oh, dear God, I do not want my daughter to experience some of the pain I experienced. I am fine with her struggling with things. I am fine with walking her through whatever. I, I, she can make any mistake in life. That's fine, but I don't want my kid to feel pain. I hate it. And so I'm in my head, sorry, rumbling through all these things of like, oh dear God, what do we do? What do we do? I'm a professional. I do this for a living. Okay, put on the Drew ministry hat and start, you know, and I'm in this process. And then my wife, the beautiful Suzanne, says to my daughter, do you want to make out with girls? And she goes, oh, no, no. She goes, you're fine. Walked over this way. And I was like, what just happened? You know, I'm like. And that kind of broke the fear in me. And I, and I was able to kind of come to my senses and I go, Elena, what is it you're feeling towards the girls that, you, that are making you ask this question? She goes, I'm lonely. I said, I understand that. Why does that mean that you're gay? Well, but I really want to connect with these girls. I said, again, why does that mean that you're gay? You're lonely and God made you for a relationship. All of us need relationship in our lives. And when you're walking through the halls of your school and you don't have someone to talk to, it makes sense that you would long for someone to talk to you. What you want is a friend. And she goes, oh, thank God. I mean, I thought that's what it was, but people kept telling me it meant I was gay. To which I want to be like, burn it all down. You know, I don't, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there. But, but do you understand that's what our kids are facing? And this is my daughter. She's been watching my life. She knows all about my ministry. She's seen everything. If she is vulnerable to what other people are saying, 
So, um, no, asexuality is not a sin. Feeling asexual, not a sin at all. All it means is that something in your heart and your soul is just not wanting that right now. And what I would say to, to whoever might be experiencing this is please don't assign an identity based on an experience that you're having. What we are experiencing in our life is not the same as who we are. Because people can reject us and treat us like crap. It doesn't mean we are crap. Right? And this is a message everyone in our world needs to hear. People who, who suffer from the effects of racism need to hear, you are not what you experience. The hatred and the judgment and the labels that get put on you, that's not who you are. The, 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 the longings of your heart even, that's not who you are. It's just what you're experiencing. So whoever might be experiencing that sense of like, I don't want to have sex with anybody. Okay, good. That's what you're experiencing right now. It's not your identity. Who are you? You are a son or daughter of the living God who loves you, created you in his image, and has a plan for your life. That's who you are. Okay, any other questions? Well, hello, way over there. We'll get to you after the lady. No, that way. Ladies first, man, ladies first. Sorry, I didn't see. Okay, so... My son is in fifth grade and they've reached recently done a curriculum where they are teaching gender differences. And I've got an eighth grade daughter who also uh, is really confused about how she's feeling about her friends who are coming out as gay and bi and she's feeling like she's asexual. So I'm like, praise you, Lord. Like, I want you to be asexual at 14. Um, yes. Do you feel like the schools are perpetuating this trend in uh, and, and causing more questions in kids than they may have had uh, before? And how do we as parents counteract that? Yes, the curriculum is perpetuating this. And let's distinguish the difference between the curriculum and the teachers. Because there's a lot of really good teachers and a lot of really godly teachers that are in the public school system and they don't have a choice of what they have to present by law. And so, uh, you know, not that there aren't teachers that are promoting this like gladly and happily, but when we, when we understand that there's a, a ideology and a principality coming at our children through the school systems, let's make sure that we categorize that for the spiritual battle that it is and not attack the people. Okay, don't let's not attack the gay community. Let's not hold them in contempt over this. Let's not hold the teachers and the school in contempt over this. Let's understand that there is spiritual warfare happening here. We have one enemy, the devil, and he is operating with a lot of permission in our school systems. And so, yes, it's perpetuating it. And so we have a couple of options as parents. Um, number one, we can elect to pull our kids out of those times of curriculum, I don't think that's necessarily always the best decision. Because what we're doing then is we're also not allowing our kids to see the counterfeit and understand and identify it. But here's the only place that that actually works that way. Our kids will only be able to understand and differentiate the counterfeit if we are teaching them the true. So we as parents have to be intentional and and deliberate about having life-giving conversations about sexuality with our kids 
at a very young age and continually. Because whatever talk we did or did not get ourselves, even if we were to do that talk perfectly today, is wildly insufficient for the world that our kids are facing. Right? And so I begin talking to my children at age five. And I said this last night for those who weren't here, I'll say it again. I talked to my kids at age five and I spoke to them in very age appropriate ways. And I started by asking questions of what they understood because rather than try to tell them what to believe, I want to know what they believe. I want to know what their understanding is so I can enrich it and, and, um, fortify it and then move the conversation forward. Does that make sense? So parents, you do not have the permission or the privilege to not talk to your kids about sex. If it's uncomfortable for you, I'm going to say this as lovingly as I can. Get over it. Because your kids do not have a choice in the fact that they are being inundated with these messages all day long, every day. And it is our God-given responsibility to lead and train and shepherd our children. And a vacuum will not stay empty. If we, if we surrender that privilege, and it is a privilege, if we surrender that privilege to culture or to someone else or to our youth pastor or to our church, even though we do need to have more conversations in the church, but if we, you know, if we um, outsource it to the church, we're, we're not, this is not going to be effective because again, the people that have the most authority and influence in the lives of our children are actually still their parents. So we need to start having conversations. We need to, if you feel like you, it's been too late, it's never too late. Start having the conversations. Start with acknowledging how awkward and how, you know, brutal the conversation might feel the first time. You know, because no kid feels comfortable beginning to have these conversations with their parents. I mean, none of us did, right? It was like, don't tell me this. My eyes, my eyes. You know, it was, that was a joke, everybody. Come on. We have to step into this. We have to be secure. We have to demonstrate that it's okay to talk about this with our kids. And we can also recognize, yeah, this is a little awkward. We're going we're gonna to embrace the fact that it's awkward. We're also going to embrace the fact that I don't know everything. So if you ask me a question and I don't know the answer, I'm going to tell you, I don't really know the answer to that, but I will find it for you. And then go and find your resources so that you can answer these questions. But we don't have the right or the privilege to remain passive anymore. We have to teach our children. And for any youth or younger person in the room who, like me, have absent parents who are not teaching you, whether because they're gone, they've abandoned you, they're not trustworthy, you wouldn't want to hear what they have to say, I get it. You are now responsible to find the information you need. Because we cannot blame our parents for failing us as permission to go be broken and unprepared. It, it's unfair that sometimes we have to parent ourselves or lean into other resources to parent ourselves, but it's the truth sometimes. And so that also applies to every adult in this room. If no one taught you these things, I'm sorry. 
you are responsible now to learn them. Because we can't bring Drew Barry SF every week to Minnesota. I don't live here because it's cold. Because Mother Nature is an abusive mother up here and she's nicer in Oregon. Okay, we had a question over here somewhere. Yes, raise hand. Way back in that corner. Um, so I think I, and I think I've probably thought this all my life, um, probably because I heard it from a pastor at a wedding or whatever, but I always, I think I always thought that the man and the woman completed each other when they got married. They, they display a complete image of God. Okay. But that's very different than saying, because of my sexual union with you, I'm going to feel fulfilled now. Right. Yeah, because you said that, that you don't need anything from your wife and she doesn't need anything from you. And in my mind, I'm thinking that's not what I thought or learned. I, I get things from my wife. I get the privilege of receiving from my wife. But the things that she gives gives me, they're not to complete my identity or to make me whole. She, okay. she doesn't have the power to do that. Right. She can't heal all my wounds. And, you know, she can't. She can't make up for all the deficits that I've had in my life. Let me tell you one way she tried to, and it backfired. Okay? This is, this is funny. This isn't weird. All right? I promise. So, you know, we got married when I was 25 years old, and I had been, I hadn't lived with, a fam with my family since I was 14. I moved out when I was 14 years old. A long story there. And I left that gay relationship at 19. So from 19 to 25, nobody barely touched me and we need touch I said this last night I'll say it again it's easier in the gay community to get sex than it is sometimes a hug in church and so my wife recognizing that I had a huge touch deficit when we got married she was like I'm going to minister to this so she started scratching my back at night in bed because I like the scratchy scratchies who doesn't well, I'm also a little bit of a scratchy, scratchy hoarder. So she would scratch me for a few minutes. I'm like, oh, no, don't stop. Stop, don't stop. You know, it's like 30 minutes would go by, and she's like, I'm going to wring your neck. I'm like, okay, you can be done. And then the next night, she'd scratch my back. And she did this faithfully for about a year and a half. And then we had our first child, and it came to a crashing end. And even though she had been so good to love me and to touch me and to give me that, that physical touch love language thing, there were still deficits there. And she got so overwhelmed by the need. She's like, Drew, I cannot fix this for you. I'm like, well, but maybe just one more scratchy scratchy. She's like, no, I cannot fix this for you. And my attempts, too, are just pissing me off. Like, this is where she got to. And honestly, I had to go to the Lord with it. And like, you know, I, it's wonderful to be able to receive this as a gift from her. And she still does it from time to time, praise the Lord. And it's a gift. It's not an expectation or a requirement. And I'm not relying on it to fill the void that my, my upbringing left. Only Jesus can really fill that void. The gift of my wife is like extra gravy on top of the helping that God has given me.
in restoring my soul. Does that make sense? And so when, when we put our spouse in the position that they are responsible for healing our heart or completing our soul, that's idolatry, actually. It's placing our spouse in the place of God. That is never kind. Never, never works. Because we're all fallible and we're all human. And we have a limit to how much grace we can give the very, very needy people in our lives. Do you all understand what I'm saying with that? How many of you know the emotional vampire that might go to your church? That when you see them coming at you in the foyer, you're like, You know, because you know the second they get to you, they're not going to let go. And it's like, or that unsolvable problem. As a pastoral counselor, I'll sit with people and they'll tell me their problems. And I'll, you know, I'll try to give some counsel. Well, that won't work because, and then you quickly realize, I can't fix you. I can't, I can't fill the need or restore your heart. Only God can do that. And my attempts to do that will only frustrate me and frustrate you. So that being said, my wife does not scratchy scratchy my back every night. Actually, our anniversary we call contract negotiations. This is just how we handle things. And so when we get to our anniversary each year, we sit down for coffee at a wonderful coffee shop. We say, how did the year go for us? Are there things we liked? Are there things we didn't like? Are there things we need to adjust in our vows and understanding of this relationship? My wife one year was like, yes, you never get to ask for scratchy scratchies after midnight. It's like, don't feed the gremlin. Okay, well, I'm old, so that reference flew over so many of your heads. Whatever. I'm not going to feel judged by that, although I do. Um, and then, you know, she said, you, you only get to ask once a week because your need is overwhelming. And I said, okay, great. I can, I can obey this. You do not get to cook, is what I said to her, because she's a terrible cook. She, she, you guys, I have to tell this story, because she's not here and she can't stop me. One of the things that also made me feel as a failure as a man is I love to cook. Like, I just love to cook. You know, that's, that's ladies' work, according to Nicole. You know, it's not, but I love to cook. It's very fortunate that I love to cook. My wife's mom is the worst cook I've ever met in my entire life. She can both burn and undercook eggs at the same time. I don't know how she does it, but it happens. So my wife never learned how to cook, so I cook for our family. But my wife one day wanted to try to bless me. Coming home from work, I came home into the house. I smelled something. It was not a familiar nor a pleasant smell. And I said, hey, hon, what's going on? She's like, I made you dinner. I'm like... Okay, just sit down. I'll bring it to you. I'm like, okay, I sat down. In comes this plate of something. I think it's chicken. It's got something on it. Does not smell good. Does not look good. I had a crisis. I'm like, well, she's done this nice thing for me. I have to respond. If I eat this and pretend I like it, she might do it again. I don't want to crush her spirit, but I don't want her to do this again. <laughs> Lay down your life for your wife, Drew. Eat the chicken. Okay. 
cutting into the chicken, put the bite in my mouth. A strange sensation, strange taste, strange texture. Something ain't right with this chicken, but I'm eating it. My wife comes in with her plate. She sits down. She cuts a piece, puts it in her mouth, and immediately spits it back out. What is that? You know? I'm like, I don't know. She goes, Drew, this is not good. I said, no, it's not. And she goes, I don't know what I did wrong. I said, okay, tell me what you were trying to make. She's like, well, there's this recipe that called for, you know, cornflake breading on the chicken. I said, okay. This is not cornflakes. What is this? Well, we didn't have cornflakes, but we had brown sugar maple fiber one cereal, so I thought it was the same thing. We forever refer to this as the night of the fiber one chicken. And we do not make that anymore. So anyway, I just had to share that story. So you would know a little bit about my wife who lets me share the story. It will come up in contract negotiations this next year, I'm sure. Anyway, so thank you for your question. <laughs> Is there another question? And again, if you have to leave, we understand. Um, I'm not offended. Goodbye. Thanks for coming. Bye. Um, I understand, and you have to understand, I will keep talking until someone stops me. And, and, and Mike's like, he's, he's true. He will. He'll keep talking. And I'm happy to keep answering questions if you've got them. Question right over here, yes. Run, run, Pastor Tom, run. Okay. So last night you had mentioned about accountability groups and how sometimes they end up just being like a place where you're like confessing like, oh, something's like this has gone wrong. Yeah. Um, but then that doesn't really get past that. So how would you suggest like being a better accountability yes. partner? Yes. Wonderful question. See, accountability groups have kind of digressed into these confessional cesspools of ghetto-ness, like, oh, we all suck kind of reality. This is sometimes how they go. But true accountability actually is living your life with the keen understanding that your life and your choices impact other people. Like, we don't live in a vacuum. And so when we have actual accountability, if someone, like when we changed our accountability groups to resemble this at the ministry I was a part of, it transformed the experience for people where if someone comes in and they share, you know, this is how I've you know, just totally indulged the flesh this week. We receive that confession. We pray for them. There's no condemnation. But then there's the opportunity for the people in the room to tell the person that, that we are in relationship with how their decision now affects them. So it would be, it went like this often. Man, I understand you had a moment of vulnerability and weakness. We all have it. But every week you're coming with these same failures. And what that's doing for me is really discouraging my hope. When this group keeps turning into just us confessing our failures, it really starts making me feel like, I don't know, like there isn't hope for us. And I don't think that's true. And actually every time, you know, one of us gives ourselves permission to sin, it undermines this whole process. And so for my own life, I really want people to walk with that are gonna fight just as hard as I am. Can you do that with me? Now that's not condemnation, but it doesn't feel good when we 
let people know how their decisions affect us. Oftentimes in, in marriage, like I see this happening where men will come and confess. They finally come to a point of confession to their wives of their addiction or their struggle with pornography or whatever it is. And the relief that comes over them when they're no longer sharing, you know, keeping the secret with Satan, but they're dumping their confession on their wife, but they don't want to hear how that affects her. But accountability says, now she gets to tell you how this affects her emotionally. Because you don't live your life in a vacuum and your choices affect the people around you. You know, when I fail with my kids, like when I act in patience or anger or, you know, we all, every parent fails once in a while. I have committed to sit with my kids as I'm apologizing to them and recognizing where I've missed the mark. I then say, I really want to know how my behavior affected you. Because it's not enough for me just to simply cover it over with confession and an apology. I need to understand what I'm doing to my daughters when I act like this. And my daughters have gotten really good at being like, you're a jerk, you know, or, or you know, that was initially. But it more along the lines of like, honestly, dad, when you react like that, it really makes me not want to trust you with my heart. Oh, I don't want that. So when I understand that my life impacts and affects one another, it affects the people in my life, accountability takes on a whole different meaning. Because now when I'm wrestling with the decision to make this sinful choice or not, it's not just my own gratification that I have in mind. It's how is this choice going to affect the people that I love and I live in my life with? That makes sense? That's a better way to do accountability. Amen? Any other questions? Questions? Question. Going once, going twice. Oh, are you gonna? Are, I don't know what's going on here. All right. Okay. Um. So my question is for like, you know, I work with kids and therefore you also work with families. And so if you have a kid that comes out to you with these struggles, what is the best response? Um, you know, obviously love, you know, but like, how do you have conversations with them, especially if things are really rocky or maybe they don't even have faith in Jesus, you know, so you, so like even approaching it from a biblical standpoint really doesn't seem like it's even on the table at times, different situations like that. Yeah, that's a great question. I think every question carries with it its own context. So like you said, if it's a kid who believes in Jesus versus a kid who doesn't believe in Jesus, if it's, you know, what is the nature of the disclosure? What's the, the, the dynamic of the family? There's so many different factors that come into play. And so the first thing that we do is we evaluate that. We evaluate the context and try to understand, you know, where our place in that context is. So like for me, if, um, you know, someone comes to me and they said, you know, like in the youth group, like a friend of my daughter's comes or my daughter comes to me and say, my friend from youth group says that she thinks she's gay. So I'm not going to rush out and try to find that kid and have a conversation with it. You know, I am closer to that kid's parents. But I also am not going to betray the disclosure that this kid gave to my daughter and, you know, expose her to her parents. So I might go to my daughter and say, 
okay, what do you know about how much her parents know? Like, let's, let's get, let's fill out the context a little bit more. And so I might get a little bit of that understanding. Then I might ask Lainey to then encourage her friend, you know, if it's safe, like if, if it is a safe family to be honest with her family. And when that happens, then I go alongside the parents and I start trying to help them understand how to relate. But if this were my kid, we'll put it in that context. Um, one of the things that we have to understand is that when we have a disclosure like this by one of our family members, this is not a new revelation for them. They've been sitting on this for a long time. It's new for us. And so we want to sometimes react like, oh, it's just a phase for them or, oh, this is, this is, you know, they haven't really thought this out. I can guarantee you if they've gotten to the point where they've said it, they've thought it out. They might not have all the information to make a correct or biblical decision about it, but they have come to a conclusion in their isolation of this and in the influence around them, they have, they have thought this out to reach a conclusion. If we start making the context of all of our interactions and relationship with them about this issue, we've now turned them into a project or a problem and not our kid who we love. And kids know when they're being treated like a project. And in particular with this struggle, it now isn't just about them us trying to fix something. It's about the fact that we are rejecting them too. And so what I say to parents is, you know, first and foremost, ask good questions. Create a safe place for your kid to tell you what they're experiencing and why they've reached the conclusions. Do so much more listening than responding. Because we don't have to agree with it. And we can even say, I may not agree with everything that you say, but I want to understand where you're coming from. Does that make sense? Because number one, we, we have no hope of effectively ministering to a kid if we don't understand the context of where they're coming from. It's like when my daughter said, what if I'm gay? If I had immediately jumped to like conclusions about my own life or my own experience and start projecting them onto her, I'm not going to effectively minister to her. When I said, well, tell me why you think that. And she said, well, I'm lonely. Now I have something that I can begin to engage with. I'm like, well, tell me why being lonely means that you're gay. And so you, you see what I'm saying is we begin to seek to understand their understanding of who they are. Once we get to the end of the, maybe that conversation, can I encourage us not to try to fix the problem or respond? Instead, just say, you know what? Thank you for sharing all of this vulnerable information with me. I love you and I am here for you. And I am going to go to the Lord and try to find the best way to love you and to engage with you on this. That's my commitment to you, kiddo. Like, I'm not leaving you and I'm not rejecting you. And we're going to have more conversations about this because I want to understand you and I want you to understand me. And I want us to be able to relate over this. And then you settle in for the long haul. Because these things very rarely develop quickly. And if it took five, 10 years for this to develop, we cannot expect a five minute conversation to fix it. Right. I once heard a pastor say, at least give the Lord equal time that the devil had to establish the problem to fix it. Often he won't need equal time. But if we come in with the expectation that in one moment we're gonna change their mind and change his trajectory, we're wrong. Our expectations are gonna get frustrated and that kid is gonna feel those expectations. 
And they're going to feel like they're disappointing us every single time they come to us and they're not different. That makes sense? So, yes, we love our kids and we absolutely take the moments in time to communicate what our convictions are. Maybe not in that first conversation, but we do get there. And as much as we might believe what we believe about sexual behavior, we also have to reiterate that as committed as we might be to that understanding, we are just as committed to loving our kid and never, ever letting them go. Okay? Good. 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 934, Mike. Yeah, there you go. That's three hours, man. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I I'm impressed you, with all of you. Yeah, exactly. I hope you got something good from spending your Friday night here. Uh, yeah. So, Drew. Definitely a pleasure having you with us for these evenings. Now it'll be church, and we have a countdown clock at church. So. And I have to land the plane. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's right. a terrible thing, I but know. Uh, I know you're a professional. I'm a it's professional, yes, yes. Uh, and it's a communion weekend, so we don't want to miss that at the end. No. That's so, yeah, very important stuff. So uh, uh, I just want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for sharing from your heart. And for kind of demystifying some of these things, you know, uh, just being able to walk into the awkward, which, you know, I'm, I'm super not good at that. You know, talk to Trinette about some of the experiences of us trying to have the talk with the boys. What is hilarious? Because, like, I just sit there freaking out and she has to take over. So, uh, you know, that's not one of my skill sets. <laughs> right, being able right. to deal with awkward conversations and these sorts of things uh, just in a normal way. Uh, and so just demystifying some of these conversations and giving people tools to even be able to think and process and, and think, well, I, I don't know, but I can wade into this. Yeah. And that's yeah. just such a valuable, valuable thing. And so thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, and thank you everyone for being here. Let's uh, close in prayer. And if you have more questions for Drew, I'm sure you can come up individually and talk with Drew. So uh, let's pray and finish out the night. So Heavenly Father, thank you again for this night, for this conversation, for the opportunity we've had to be able to explore all of these different things and, and learn and glean things from all the experience and the knowledge that Drew brings uh, to this subject. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue to move in our hearts and help us to see who we are in you, help us to understand the why, so that we can go for something better than what we have. And so, Father, help us to grab hold of the fullness that you have for us in, in this area, in all areas. And Father, I pray your blessings on Drew and his ministry and his family. Lord, encourage them and continue to, to grow them into the fullness of the picture that you have for them. And Lord, bless uh, this weekend as Drew's going to be ministering in the, the regular services as well. And so, Father, thank you for this night. Thank you for this ministry and encourage and strengthen us all as we seek to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for being here.